0: This is without warning. Warning: The following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature.
1: I'm so glad that I'm able to have Alina Burrows on Without Warning podcast. Alina is a former CSI Senior Applications Engineer expert. After a 12-year career as a crime scene investigator, Alina joined Faro Technologies. Alina holds a Master of Science degree in Criminal Justice from University of Central Florida. She is a former Senior Certified Crime Scene Analyst and an Instructor of Forensic Science at the college level. Alina is a published author in the Journal of Forensic Identification and has received awards for investigative skills from the Orange County Sheriff's Office and the FBI. Welcome Alina Burroughs to Without Warning Podcast, a strong, independent, compassionate, knowledgeable forensic scientist
0: So my name is Alina Burrows, and I am currently an application engineer for Faro Technologies. They make 3D laser scanners to document crime and crash scenes, amongst other things. And my background is that I am a retired crime scene investigator. Um, Twelve years crime scene out of Orange County in Orlando, Florida. And we had our share of major cases that came through um, Casey Anthony and the Pulse shooting. And unfortunately, I think we've we've become quite synonymous with some of those cases. But that's a little bit of my background. and, And what brought me to Pharaoh was just a passion to to really elevate the crime scene game. Um, And what I've frequently said is when I started Crime Scene in 2003, we used tape measures. That was our standard method of documenting a crime scene. So it is now 2019. And there are probably 80%, 70% of agencies that are still using the same equipment to document a crime scene in 2019 that we were using in 2003. And that's not okay. Crime scene is one of the most rapidly evolving fields outside of medical science and we have to step it up and we can no longer use the excuse of, well, that's the way that we've always done it because there are new ways to do things that give our juries more information, more evidence, and we have to make that the new standard. So I came to Faro Technologies and I'm a, a trainer there and I basically train law enforcement, crime scene collision experts, um, military, any type of public safety officials how to implement laser scanning into their documentation. And how to make end products for court and products that get discussions going with state attorneys, district attorneys, or even internally to the agency. So it's just uh, it's time that we hold ourselves to a higher standard, and I'm I want to make that happen.
1: Going from the tape measure to the Faro machine means that you're getting a more accurate investigation. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. So laser scanning, um, depending on the scanner that you choose, is anywhere from three to one millimeter of accuracy. And that is way more than if I gave a tape measure to a room full of six people and I asked them to all measure the same thing. I'm going to get six different measurements because people round differently. They hold tape measures differently. Tape measures are also not exactly perpendicular to what you need to measure. So there are all kinds of human errors that tape measures don't take into account where the scanner does. And tape measures measure one thing, and the scanner is going to capture the entire scene. Whether or not you recognized you needed to take a measurement at that time or whether or not you recognized the importance of an item of evidence at that time, it's still captured.
1: It is difficult to work in crime scene and talk about cases. But you brought up two cases, the Casey Anthony case and the Pulse mass shooting If I don't ask you about it, I will get mail, tweets, and Facebook messages. As hard as it is, would you mind talking about those cases?
0: Sure. So uh, I'll start with the most recent. My involvement in the Pulse shooting, because I had already retired. I retired from my crime scene career in 2015. And when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, a state of emergency was declared in Florida. We had 49 victims, and that's oftentimes larger than what a local morgue can handle or medical examiner's office. So when they declared a state of emergency, I'm on the state response team called FEMERS. And FEMERS is the state version of DMORT, if you're familiar with the Disaster Mortuary Operations Response. So FEMERS is Florida's Emergency Mortuary Operations Response Team. So we came in, and they look at everybody's background background as to where you would be best fit, the jurisdiction of the scene investigation itself is still going to rest on city, county, or state, whoever decides to take that over. But I was stationed at the District 9 Medical Examiner's Office, assisting with the autopsies of the 49 victims. So our main goal at that point, and the main goal of our team, is to identify Because any type of investigation, any type of path you follow, clues or evidence starts with who that individual is. And it's also what brings closure to families. And I can't imagine the pain or the turmoil of not hearing from a loved one and just not knowing, not knowing where they are, if they're in a hospital, if they're unconscious, if they're gone. So our goal was to get in and identify as quickly as possible. So uh, we responded on Sunday. Uh, The shooting happened Saturday night into Sunday, and by Sunday, we had set up our operations. We have two sides of our team. We have one group that interviews family members and takes pertinent information. What were they last wearing? Do they have scars, tattoos, anything that we could use to identify because in these mass casualty incidents, panic ensues. So women aren't going to be carrying their purses that have identifications, and men might not necessarily have wallets or, or IDs in their pockets. So we have one side of the team that investigates from family member information, and we have another side of the team that processes the bodies, and basically escorts each body through as they get a full homicide autopsy. So any jewelry or personal effects are photographed, taken into consideration, x-rays, all of the DNA standards that are taken, everything. So I was at the morgue and assisted on the 49 autopsies.
1: Wow. I can't even imagine going through that process and doing that work how are you able to handle it on a personal level? What does it do to you personally?
0: So I had been a crime scene investigator for 12 years already when Pulse happened. And I think when you're a crime scene investigator, you know you deal with PTSD in, in a couple of different ways, right? A, you're surrounded by other people that live that same life. So you are open, you can talk about those things, you know, how you felt. There are certain things that will strike you. Um, for me, hearing a victim's cell phone ringing when I know that they're gone, but their families don't know is what strikes me the hardest because it's, it feels unfair. I shouldn't know these things before somebody else that loves them knows these things. With Pulse, it was particularly hard because nothing that you do is going to prepare you for 49 victims, and not just 49 victims, but 49 victims that just merely went out to have fun. There was, there was no ill intent. There was no way that we could have justified you know, the shooting from happening. It was 49 people that left people they loved to go have fun, to dance, to be with each other and kind of escape the stress of life. And that's a hard pill to swallow especially when you're working it during the day, you come home and you see it on the news. And it was almost like, I don't, I don't want to hear the stories. I can't hear their names. I can't know their, their attachments and their family members um, because it makes it very difficult. And there are cases that I have worked that will, be it now or 20 years from now, will still probably make me cry. And I've come to understand that that's okay Because that that makes me human, and that's part of why I do these jobs, and part of why you do what you do is because we want to bring peace to people. We can't change the fact that these crimes have occurred. We can't change society, but I can identify somebody and and have their family, get them back to their family so that they can have a funeral, so that they can go home. So all of those things are, are all that I can do. And I would be lying if I said it did not affect me. Of course, it's going to affect you.
1: PTSD.
0: When I talk about PTSD and I say like there are certain things that, A, that prepare you ahead of time to cope better. It takes a certain personality type, I believe, that's drawn to this career field that's going to be okay with seeing some of the things that we have to see, Um, seeing families say goodbye to their loved ones. And you get adjusted, I think, to a certain level, you get better at turning it off. You get better at disassociating. So in the beginning, when I saw, you know, a female that had committed suicide, I saw the struggle. When you investigate, you see the self-help books, you see the counseling appointments, you see the medications, and you see this person really, truly tried. And you have to not think of that person as somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's wife, because that leads to you thinking of them as your mother, your sister. And then you internalize a lot of a lot of those feelings. So I think you learn how to disassociate. You learn how to rely on friends and family that are around you. We often surround ourselves with people that are very like us. We have coping mechanisms. We we curse and we drink and, and we're really fun at parties. But <laughs> but we surround ourselves with people that understand us and that helps. And then there are some, you know, healthy coping mechanisms for, for me. I work out six days a week. And part of that maintaining me and my body and my physical well-being. And taking care of myself, making sure I'm eating well and drinking well. And, you know, that I get a massage every now and then, or I take a day when I just don't want to be an adult or a human or anything else. And I take that day and I allow myself to do that. And then the next day I go, okay, now it's time to get it together and and get back out there.
1: Did you take any time off after the pulse mass shooting?
0: So it's interesting that you should ask that because I was full-time employed at Faro at that point. And I knew how to respond if I were in a law enforcement world. I would say, I'm going to go work this call. And they would understand. But now I'm like, okay, I'm in the corporate world. And I don't know how this is going to be taken. So it was a Sunday when the call came in. And I called my boss as I was driving to the command post. And I said, hey, you know, everybody, of course, in Orlando at this point knew what was going on. There was just a gray cloud over the entire city. And I called my boss and I said, I know you're watching the news and um, they called us in to help and I need to do this. So I don't know how long it's going to take, but I know tomorrow's Monday and it's probably going to take at least until then. So I'm going to take whatever time off um, and I'll use my vacation time to, to cover this, but it's something I need to do. And she said, of course, understand, uh, we'll cover it. And within a matter of hours... I had received a message um, through the CEO of the company at the time who lived in California. And it said, do whatever it is that you need to do. Take how much of time you need to work this. Offer any of the services that we have, any of the people that we have that could assist in any way in, in documenting. Take as much time off as you need when you're done before you come back. And the kicker, we're proud of you right? That still brings tears to my eyes to think of a company that gets it, right? And that's when I knew that I had made the right decision in going to Faro. They get it. It wasn't about, you know, well, how long are you going to be gone? And, you know, this and that. And they said, and, and by the way, you will absolutely not use your vacation time for this.
1: Wow, that is amazing. It says a lot about the company.
0: It really does. It really does. That's when it, you know, and I had questioned leaving law enforcement and going to Pharaoh. There aren't other crime scene investigators. I think we have a a few now, but at the time there, there were no other people like me. And I felt very isolated, very alone, right? I've talked about the coping mechanisms we have is that surrounding ourselves with people like us. And now I have trauma and nowhere to go with it because the people that I'm surrounded by haven't lived my life. So that really solidified the dis- that in my mind of they don't have to have lived your life and have those experiences to have empathy and to allow you to be who you need to be. So I, at that point, was like, you know what? It's, it's uncomfortable. I feel vulnerable without my you know 1,500 brothers and sisters in uniform, but I'm still going to be okay. And maybe I can use my experiences or my trauma or whatever to make a difference in future investigations. So you have to turn your trauma into something positive.
1: This is a story that makes me cry. I'm impressed with the company and the fact that they understood that your work is so important to so many families and so many lives. And they gave you that flexibility. Bravo to them. Because of your work, families got answers.
0: The trauma just becomes the new norm. I think anytime somebody goes through a traumatic event, be it families of survivors, they're not going to go back to where it was before that. You're not going to. This has just established a new norm of behavior of life for you. So you have to go forward from that, not expecting to ever and not struggling to get back to where you were because it's not possible.
1: Daily Harvest is a proud sponsor of Without Warning Podcast. I look forward every week to my shipments of Daily Harvest. All of Daily Harvest ingredients are sourced and selected for maximum nourishment. Daily Harvest has delivered thoroughly sourced, chef-crafted foods that are built on fruits and vegetables and can be prepared in less than 5 minutes. So I walk in the door, I open the freezer, I pull out a Daily Harvest cup, I put it in a blender, and in less than five minutes, probably more like three, I have a nutritional meal. I look forward to it every single time I come home from a trip. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code WOW to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code WOW for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. The Casey Anthony case.
0: Sure. So we're hitting on the two today that, that pretty much will make me cry no matter. I think when I'm 80 years old on my deathbed, I think I will still cry. So yes, Casey Anthony. I took the first phone call that came into the forensic unit. And I remember they called and said, we've got a car and we need to tow it to the sheriff's office. And at that point in time, we only towed, we had a very limited amount of space for vehicle storage at the sheriff's office. So they had to meet certain criteria. If they were going to come to the sheriff's office, it needed to be a homicide case, an officer involved shooting. Otherwise, we had secured towing facilities all over the county. So when they called and said, we need to bring this car to the sheriff's office, I said, okay, what's it involved in? What do we have going on? And they said, well, it's, uh, right now it's a missing person case, but the car smells and we want you guys to smell it and let us know if it's decomp, if it's decompositional fluid. And they had actually asked for us to do a test. And, you know, I kind of laughed. I said, well, there's not really any test for decomp available at the local sheriff's office level. I said, aside from having all of the investigators go smell it, because we've all done this combined in that unit had at that point in time, something like over 85 years of crime scene experience. And if you've ever smelled decomposition, you know that it is a very unique odor. It doesn't smell like anything else. It doesn't smell like pizza. It doesn't smell like trash. It doesn't smell like a dead squirrel. It doesn't smell like anything else. It's a very unique scent. So all of the investigators went out into the garage and said, oh, yeah, I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that's decomp. That's there's something has decomposed inside this car. And we even had another investigator who was not there when the car came in and didn't know the intention of bringing the car in, who just walked past and said, oh, man, who brought the decomp car in without even knowing the background of the case? So at that point in time, it was just a missing person case, but it was suspicious because of the odor in the car. And little did I know that car was going to live in our garage for, I think it was almost a year, if not more. So that was where, you know, the sheriff's office became involved in this case and everybody saw it develop in the news, just like we saw it develop, right? Missing person, suspicious behavior on mom. And anytime they have a missing child, there's an immediate list of suspects, Right? We know that it's typically family or some way related to the child, uh, maybe baby's daddy, but some way, somewhere close. Typically, people don't just come into a middle-class white neighborhood and just steal and murder a child. Like it doesn't, It just doesn't happen like that. So they started looking at the behavior of mom, which was a little bizarre, I would say. Sociopathic, I would definitely say. And it was missing person. We had done multiple search warrants at the house. Initially, we're still trying to find who took the child. The Zenaida Gonzalez story, of course, came out, and we were trying to do anything and find anything in the house that Zenaida could have touched so that we could get fingerprints. We could find this person. So we weren't immediately just tunnel vision looking towards the Anthony family. It was, okay, you know, if you tell us that you left this child with the nanny, what were the things that you brought to the nanny's house when you brought the child? Where was her backpack? DVDs, right? Every kid goes with a backpack full of DVDs to anybody's house. Where are the DVDs? Where's um, her, whatever gear she slept on. She slept on an inflatable bed. Where's the inflatable bed? Where's the pump for the bed? All of these things that we're trying to process for fingerprints. So I ended up processing those items for fingerprints and I got none that weren't Kaylee or Casey's. So... It didn't give us anywhere else to go. And the detectives were doing their side of the work. We were doing our side. We, we got called out initially to search the backyard of the residence. We had cadaver dogs out there. There's footage, helicopters flying over the house and all of us kind of descending upon the backyard. And it was all, the family was very helpful. They wanted their grandchild back. So they were helpful at that point. And as soon as we brought shovels out and tried to even put a shovel in the dirt, we realized we couldn't. The backyard was so thick with bamboo that you couldn't dig a hole in the backyard, which come to later find out that Casey borrowed a shovel from the neighbor and then returned it promptly made sense with that. If she had tried to initially bury her in the backyard and dig, would have found that she could not have and would have given the shovel back. would also explain why a cadaver dog hit on a certain area in the backyard. She might have brought her out there with the intention of burying her. And then when she couldn't, went, now what? So confused, puts her in the trunk of the car, drives around, doesn't know what to do. Things I think in her life had been very easy for her. She was a pretty girl, right? She got what she wanted. And I think this was the first time that it was, I can't get out of this. So fast forward all those search warrants on the house and us taking the you know photographs and looking for all of these clues and then we got the call I remember it was my day off and I was with a couple of other investigators we were having brunch and we looked up on the TV in the restaurant where we were eating and it said remains discovered a block away from Anthony residence and we all just looked at each other and at that point the meter reader who had gone into the into the woods to urinate was was his His story then uh, had found a skull that had duct tape around the mouth portion of the skull. So that was when our 12, I believe 12 days, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on the recovery site, hands and knees, a team of investigators just literally taking a jungle down to nothing but dirt with hand trowels and a little pair of hand snips and bringing out Buckets after buckets of leaf litter, of dirt, and all of those things were sifted a minimum of three times through three different grates, sizes of chicken wire to make sure that everything was captured. And I equate this, we're talking about a child, right? Very small bones that had been in that area for, for probably about a year. All of those specific facts of timelines have kind of uh, blurred out for me, but I equate it to if you just took a handful of Tic Tacs or, or something very small and threw it into the woods, what would your likelihood of going back a year later and being able to find them all considering rain, flooding, drying, animal activity, all kinds of things. So we we took it very seriously um, and we're out on that scene for, for 11 or 12 days or so almost 12 hours a day. We did grid searches. We went out at night with alternate light sources because bone will often fluoresce under UV lighting. So we waited for dark and then searched a second time under alternate light source. Very proud of my team, right? It was a a team effort. And because I retired, I can talk about it, which is the reason that I think people ask me about the case, but it wasn't me. It was a team of probably 50 people when it comes to detectives and road patrol and crime scene and everybody playing their little part. But, um, that was hard too. You go home and you see her on Nancy Grace singing, you are my sunshine. And you know that three hours earlier, you held her bones in your hands and you own that. And even though all of us knew that it was her, I remember the day, um, the medical examiner, Dr. G, had, had done a press conference to do the DNA results, the release, and say that it was Kaylee. And we knew it was, and they told us ahead of time that it was. And then when it came time for the press conference, everybody, we were still at the recovery scene. We were still working. We all took a break and went inside the mobile command post, covered in dirt, covered in sweat. One of the girls was pregnant. I had poison ivy. I was going back and forth to the care because I had poison ivy under my eyes from wiping the sweat. I had it in my ears. I had it all over my stomach and my forearms. And we all just stood around and cried. And I know that even though the results weren't what we wanted, we did everything that we could for her. And if the result of that is that a mom hugged her child a little tighter, maybe thought twice about disciplining (laughs) her child or, or yelling at their kid or was maybe a little more patient with their child or felt a little bit more grateful. Or got out of a bad situation with somebody because it, it put their child at risk, then that's the good that I think came out of everything, right? Did it did it turn out the way that I thought it would or that I wanted? No, but that is not my job. And religion or, or not aside, forensic evidence speaks for itself. Right? Only the interpretation can fail. We did what we did. We brought forth the physical evidence. We had everything that we needed. We can't make people understand the science behind what we did. We can't make people understand that we're not biased. And we can't make people see the entire case when, and one of my pet peeves, is that jurors don't get all the information. Jurors make life and death decisions based on a very small piece of a case. There are many, many things that we knew as investigators that the jury did not get to know. Why? you know, Because it was uh, against somebody's character, it was damning, it was this or it was that, because the science of the odor in the trunk of the car and the air samples we took was deemed junk science. They don't get all the information, which is another reason why Faro and why laser scanning and why... Improving and holding ourselves to a higher standard and stepping our game up is so important to me because jurors deserve to see the picture, all of the picture, not a a concept that was painted by each side of attorneys, right? They're going to each paint the picture they want you to see. And then you have to pick from both of those sides that have already sifted through information. And I think juries need all the information to make these decisions. And they need information presented to them in a fashion that makes sense and doesn't make them make guesses. If they see two photographs in court, they don't know the, the spatial relationship, how far apart those things were. If they look at scan data, they can walk through a scene 3D, through fly-through videos, through virtual reality, and they go, okay, that's really far, or that's really close. Because the average person, me included, and I've been in a measurement career for, let's see, well, it's over 15 years of my life, if you ask me to estimate what 47 feet looks like, it depends on the day how accurate I'm going to get. And that's me in a measurement field. So what is our average juror's ability to estimate what distances are? If I get on the stand and I testify it was about this far, they don't, they don't have that capability. And it's not through their fault. It's through our fault for failing to explain and show things in an understandable fashion.
1: Great transition into the Pharo machine and technologies. I would like to set up what happened and how we used it in Mississippi in the Andreachio case. A Faro machine was used in the bathroom and all the measurements were done. That I wanted to know was the trajectory of the gun, where Christian was when the gun was shot. I wanted a comparison of what was told in the police department. And was it possible or not possible based solely on the science?
0: To give a brief background for people that aren't familiar with Pharaoh or know what it is, you know, it's a, it's a 3D laser scanner that is, it's a very small piece of equipment. All in all, I think it's 10, 10-ish pounds that mounts on top of a tripod and inside is a laser The laser is reflected off of a mirror that spins very quickly and that disperses the laser beams throughout the um, in this case like would be the interior of a residence as soon as the laser strikes an object that data is reflected back to the scanner and the result is a virtual copy of your scene we also refer to it as a point cloud so it's a cloud of millions and millions of points that make up the scene And the scanner is capable of capturing up to 976,000 points per second. So think of measuring or creating a diagram and and locating each one of those (laughs) points with a tape measure, right? So we can do this faster and create um, more data. The best thing about creating this virtual scene is that it sets us up for a lot of other analyses that we can do we can do trajectory analysis down the road Um, if we have blood spatter we can do blood spatter analysis down the road if we have virtual reality and it's important for you to be able to physically stand in that scene and place yourself at a certain height you can use htc vive oculus rift whatever and go inside the scene virtually so as investigators just an extremely important amount of information With traditional crime scene documentation, you have one shot. You have one shot to capture the photos you need to collect the evidence that you need, and that's while the scene is still secured by law enforcement. Once it's released, that shot is gone because the scene could have been altered um, in any way. So this gives the crime scene investigator a little peace of mind that the entire area has been captured and we can revisit it at any point in time. Now, you know, as an investigator, We do not have all of the information in that hour after the call comes in, that two hours maybe, or that that small window where the investigators are on scene. We have a fraction of the information. Information becomes available days weeks, months, years after the fact, when somebody that didn't want to talk now feels like maybe they want to talk. And it could be because they need to get right with their God. It could be because the the threat is no longer on them, right? They didn't feel safe in saying something. So maybe that threat's now gone and it's years later, they can talk. It enables us to then, whenever that new information comes available, revisit the scene in its entirety and then say, okay, why is this like this? Whereas traditionally, you would have had only what you recognized as important at the time that you were on the scene with minimal information.
1: In Christian Andriacchio's case, we took the ferro machine and scanned the bathroom and went off of the pictures. Based on that, what information would we be able to gather and get scientifically from doing that? Can you tell the height or angle of the person that shot the gun?
0: So you can tell a lot of things on, you know, after the fact, as long as you've got the scene that has been scanned, right? And yours is more based on the, the layout of the room than the physical things that were in the room. So yours, whether or not you went back five years later, probably didn't change a whole lot, right? We still have the structure, the walls, the doors, those are the important relevant features. And a big part of that particular case is could have all of these things have occurred in that small space. Right, the size of that space becomes very relevant in your case. And the size of Christian is relevant in terms of how much space he took up in there. So absolutely you can recreate that scene and you can take that 3D point cloud data into multiple third-party softwares, or Faro makes one called Pharaoh Zone, and take it into FaroZone Zone and put a model that is Christian's height in there so that now we have the scene at the accurate size and height everything was. It's all scaled. It is the scene, just a virtual copy. And then we can have a model of Christian. Another thing you can do is if you had any photographs of a person, CCTV footage is a frequently used one in crime scene. So we have um, a footage of somebody that's walking through this particular area. Usually it's a a bank, a convenience store, something like that. We can scan that same bank or convenience store and take that CCTV photo. And we're basically going to trick the software into thinking the photo is another scan. And uh, we're going to stitch them all together by picking like points that exist in both the photograph and in the scan data. So that's how we know how to precisely place that photo. And then we can measure that person's height and it's been validated, it's accurate to the centimeter. So is it going to tell you five six or five seven? Eh, it depends on how people are positioned in CCTV footage, what kind of shoes they're wearing, and if they're in a position where they're shifting their motion. But the art and the science of it there is picking the photograph that you can that shows most standing at, you know, at the straightest point, not running with a, a one foot solidly planted on the ground. It will give you more accuracy from that. But yeah, certainly possible.
1: With the distance determination test, we're able to see the trajectory and how far the gun was from when it fired and shot someone. With the help of technology, we've taken the guessing out of what happened, where a gun was, what the trajectory was. There's no more guessing.
0: Correct. And the, the thing about trajectory is that it is, it's very predictable. It's physics-based. Bullets don't turn right corners. They don't magically you know, stop in midair. They behave in a very predictable fashion. And especially when you have information like a distance determination or we have standard gun height, if somebody's going to be shooting, we know the gun is typically three and a half to four and a half feet off the ground, depending on their height. So when you have the trajectory line, you have the angle above or below the horizon and to the right or left of our vertical plane, we can draw that line to infinity. And at some point on both ends of that line, it's going to be unreasonable, right? Either the person is below the floor at one aspect or they're 18 feet in the air on the other end. So we can narrow it down to where does our average gun height meet And with your distance determination methods, you know, where does all of that information fit? And it gives us a likelihood of where somebody was standing. And with bullet holes, when you have your impact and an impact hole and a secondary hole that place that, that line, that line does not change. It doesn't change in the slightest. So if somebody says and makes a statement about where they were standing, you can corroborate or refute that statement based on the physics of how bullets work. Science doesn't lie science doesn't lie that's the beauty of physical evidence it either is or it isn't my next
1: episode is with Howie Kahn the author of Becoming a Private Investigator the Masters at Work series Howie shadowed me and Mark Gillespie along with other private investigators to write this book join me as I turn the tables on Howie and interview him Listen to what Howie thinks about Lauren Agee's case and Jonathan Cruz's case and meeting the parents and what it has done to him personally. This is a must-listen episode. Also, go to my Facebook page, Without Warning Private Investigation, and learn how to win a copy of Howie Kahn's Becoming a Private Investigator, the Masters at Work series.
0: Lauren's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared in hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at shilawaasaki.com.